Hello and welcome to Android Bytes, powered by Asper. I'm David Ruddick, and each week I'm joined by my co-host Michelle Rahman as we dive deep into the world of Android. And on this week's show, we're getting into an area that I personally find very interesting, credentials attestation, uh, which actually we're talking about mobile driver's license and other kinds of digital identity documents and how they actually work on your smartphone, which I think personally is a tremendously fascinating topic because it's an evolution of something that's been around for decades at this point and really hasn't changed too much, which is, you know, the cards and various other documents used to identify you are who you say you are. We have a very special guest on uh, with us this week to talk about that, and I'll let Michelle introduce him. Thanks, David. So on today's episode, we've invited David Keltz from Get Group North America. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. It's great to be here. This is a very timely episode given the recent announcements at Google I.O. But first, before we dive into those announcements and what they mean, the broader implications, let's set the stage a bit. Apple unveiled Apple Pay back in 2014, so that's about like eight years ago from now. And then Google followed up a year later with its own Android Pay in 2015. Of course, Android Pay became Google Pay, became Google Wallet in 2022. So, you know, the name is a work in progress. But since 2015, with my Android smartphone, I've been able to store my credit cards in the digital wallet on my phone. And if I didn't need to carry my driver's license around, then I could totally ditch my wallet and leave it at home. But the sad fact is I still have to have my physical plastic Texas driver's license if I want to go anywhere legally. Well, there's no public, good public transit anywhere where I live, so I have to drive, so I have to have my driver's license. So yeah, that's the situation for me right now. And that's the situation for tens of millions of Americans. So why is it that even though we've been able to digitize our credit cards and our transit passes and our loyalty cards, et cetera, for years now, why haven't we been able to digitize our driver's license? So I wanted to ask you, David, why has it taken so long for digital driver's licenses to enter the conversation? Like, has anything changed in recent years to accelerate its development? Well, the analogy you bring up is an interesting one because it does, with payment cards transitioning onto the phones, there's a similar build that's sort of necessary in an ecosystem way. You need to have, with the way mobile driver's licenses play out, businesses that accept them, that have a reader device to accept them, and you have to have customers, consumers that are the holders of a mobile driver's license. And if you look at, I mean, what we take for granted with the physical cards is that I can hand one that's, I mean, I've gone through a rigorous process to get it because I've proven my identity sufficiently to my state. And I've been handed this card that has security features in it. And I give it to someone and they sort of inherently see these security features and they can look at the data on it. So there's a lot that goes into that whole process. And when you try to replicate that into digital space and onto mobile phones with a mobile driver's license, you have to replicate a lot of those same things and you have to build out that ecosystem. So I think there's a lot at play and there's been a lot of work that's happened over the years. I've been involved with this for over eight years now with the standards development and the product development that's two different companies. So there's a lot that's gone into how you replicate what happens in the physical world and the trust that we just sort of take for granted because people are carrying that. So I think as we go into the details of how it works, you can kind of see how that, that gets built out. In terms of what's changed recently, so in September, the International Standards Organization or um, ISO published the first version of a mobile driver's license standard. What 
this accomplishes is it makes the transmission of signed identity data from one device to another device possible and it standardizes that. So that's kind of different than how payment parts work and that there's sort of a token and, and you're basically doing a lookup on the server side. While that's a feature of the mobile driver's license standard, that transmission of data from one phone to another and the ability to check digital signatures on that is a key piece of it. So that was published in September and there has been, although there's been a lot of discussion over the years, people were waiting for that to be published so that you could take your driver's license and move from one jurisdiction to another. I could go across the state border here in Massachusetts and use it in New Hampshire. It would be accepted. I could take it and go around the world. So that publication of the standard was a key event for, for a key trigger really for this to start to happen. Yeah, I was waiting for you to bring up the standard. For those of you who aren't familiar, the number of the standard is ISO 18013-5 for mobile driver's license applications. And it's easy to think why has they've been waiting so long to publish this. The truth of the matter is that work on this standard began all the way back in 2016. So like right after Google Pay, Apple Pay, pretty much like a year after those two came to market, the working standards group that actually was formed to devise this standard formed in 2016. And of course, it takes years for various agencies, the issuing authorities, companies involved, all these stakeholders to come together and agree on a set of guidelines for mobile driver license applications to actually agree and finalize and publish the first version, which just happened in September 2021. So that took a long time. And because of that, we're starting to see slower moving bodies like issuing authorities from, you know, your DMV get on board with the idea. There needed to be a standard. Otherwise, it would be the F word, the fragmentation that we always talk about when it comes to Android. You want to avoid that. You definitely don't want that to happen. And given the way that driver's licenses are issued in the U.S. with 50 states issuing their own licenses, you definitely want to make sure this is done in a standardized and uniform at least the back end, the framework is standardized and uniform. Of course, one of the most important things to get the ball rolling and to actually get mobile driver license adopted is for big companies, big tech companies to actually support the feature, especially Google and Apple. They're the two developers of the two biggest mobile operating systems on the planet. And that's where you're going to store your mobile driver's licenses on your Android or your iOS phone. That's why it was very important, I think, at Google I.O. earlier this month, Google reintroduced Google Wallet, which had first launched in 2011. Google Wallet's back. And one of the new features of the new Google Wallet is the ability to store your digital ID, like your driver's licenses in particular. That hasn't launched yet. Wallet itself hasn't launched yet, but digital ID support will be coming to Wallet later this year. We don't know exactly where it will be supported because Google hasn't published a list of states or regions where it'll be available. But they did say that they're working with state governments in the U.S. and governments around the world to bring digital ID support. So speaking of working with governments, your company, David, Get Group North America, is also doing similar efforts. You're working with issuing authorities, you're working with governments to implement digital IDs. Can you tell us a bit about the products and services your company offers? Sure. So we have a suite of applications and a set of services that we offer to the issuing authorities. We have a current pilot for mobile driver's license in the state of Utah, where we're about to turn that into production. And we've been running the pilot for nearly a year now, but the products are essentially, there is a, what you would call a holder application or a user application. This is the application that holds the mobile driver's license securely and gives the user control over the data that they share with that. So they can select the data that they want to share for that particular use case, for instance, 
just my age when I'm going into a bar or restaurant. I can select that and I can share it. It implements this ISO 18013-5 standard. That's one piece. We also have a verifier application, which is available in the app stores now on both iOS and Android devices. And we'll have Microsoft as well, Windows devices soon. And that verifier is the reader application that takes the data and checks it against the public keys. So that's available. And then the services that we have for the governments is a GT mobile administrator. It basically makes it really quick and simple for an issuer to connect up with us, keep the data in sync that goes over to the mobile devices, not have to manage the mobile device fleet for their entire state. And it injects that sort of um, privacy layer that allows the DMVs to accomplish what they really do want to accomplish, the issuers want to accomplish, which is they don't want to track transactions. They don't want to see this. So that layer is um, a critical layer there too. We have, I mentioned the state of Utah and we have a couple of proof of concepts that we've done with governments, one in Asia, one in South America, we have an ongoing pilot in Sweden with a partner. And so this really is sort of a global effort to try to come together at the same time. And that, that that's part of the we were talking about earlier, the challenge of, of making things happen quickly. Yeah. So it's, it's great to hear that there are already several states and governments that are piloting their own mobile driver license programs. But of course, we can't assume that every government and every state official is aware of this ISO standard or that they've been following the conversation around mobile driver's licenses. So they need to be convinced. Why should we do this? Like, why should we back digital IDs? When I first wrote about the Android API for digital IDs back in 2019, I got a deluge of comments about users who were concerned about why should I do this? This feels like it's insecure. It feels like it's going to lead to a huge invasion of privacy. One of the areas that I heard a lot of concern about was with law enforcement interaction. Users were concerned that if they hand over their phone to the police officers, you know, they're suddenly exposing themselves to having their phone searched through. Or because we live in a world with Photoshop and deep fakes that digital IDs are just going to be easy to forge. Or what happens when your phone runs out of battery? What are you going to do when your cop pulls you over and you don't have your ID to show? So these are some of the concerns that I've come across when writing and researching about mobile driver's licenses. And I'm sure you've seen these or you've heard of these as well as other concerns. I think these are valid concerns for anyone who isn't familiar with the standard and the way MDL apps are set up. So I wanted to ask you to like walk us through these concerns one by one and explain why users should or shouldn't be concerned by them. So first of all, I wanted to ask you about the law enforcement interaction one, because I think that's something that probably the first thing a lot of users will be concerned about. So right now, when you hand over your plastic card, they can see your name and your address and anything they look up in their state records. If you hand over your phone, though, and it's unlocked, then they could theoretically access anything that's on it. Of course, many people don't want to expose that data, so they're skeptical of digital driver's licenses. So tell us why users should or shouldn't be concerned by this. Well, in fact, they should not hand their phone over to law enforcement and there isn't a need to do that. And this concern is completely valid. I completely understand. I mean, it's shared really very widely. So one of the things that the ISO standard 18.0.13.5 does give you is that ability to share the subset of data or share the data of a driver's license without handing over your phone and without showing it, which is another key thing you mentioned in the prologue there, which is. It is really easy to create deep fakes. It's easy to create a physical, you know, something that looks like the physical license on the phone. And so showing it is something that's really sort of left out. It's explicitly said, do not set it up in the ISO. It's not ISO standard to, to show it to someone. So that means being able to hit a button to share the data 
and then have the electronic communication go across between devices. That's a key piece of that. That means quite a number of things from the privacy standpoint. One, control that I mentioned. Two, you do not have to hand it over. And believe me, the first question out of police officers' mouths when we start talking about this is, I don't want to take a person's phone. Like, I don't want the liability of holding their phone. They just don't want that. I don't want another thing in my hands when I'm in a roadside stop situation. So concern is definitely valid. You do not have to do that. And you can share the data with either the scan of a QR code to kick off the transmission, NFC tap to kick off the transmission. And then as we go forward in the next versions of the standard, there'll be a distance interaction where you can basically say, I'm willing to share and then receive a request and respond to the request. So all of those will facilitate sharing with law enforcement without having to hand over the phone at all. Just as a brief aside, David, if you know, what kind of communication standard would the wireless protocol be utilizing? Has that been decided? Um, yes. So there are multiple ways to kick off the transaction. Currently in the version of the standard, there's a scan of a QR code or an NFC tap that exchanges a token, essentially. And then the transmission mechanisms that supported for this offline are Bluetooth, low energy. It's not paired. So it's an advertised service that you connect to, the verifier connects to and makes a request for the data and the request is approved. In addition, Wi-Fi Aware is available for that on the phones that support it, which is a little bit quicker than Bluetooth for the transmission. And there's also what we call a server retrieval model where that token is used to go back to a protected ABI and the request is made for the data from that API. So you mentioned just now that this transaction or this transmission can happen while offline. So I wanted to ask you, mm -hmm. how exactly does that work on the holder device and the verifier devices? And like, how does the holder device, where is the card stored? And like, is it able to be tampered with? Is it stored in a secure place? How does that work? So the card could be stored in a number of different ways on the devices. And typically this is done with sort of what's the state of the art for storing of key data or identity data or any really protected encrypted data is to use the keychains and the key stores on the mobile devices to encrypt that data and store it and make it accessible only to the application and likely also only when the application has been unlocked with a specific application pin or face ID, touch ID, biometric, you know, fingerprint on the back of the device. So that unlocking. In addition, I know you, you had a great article on the identity credential API in Android as well, which is an operating system level support back to Android 7 for the storage of these, I mean, for the get mobile products, GT products, we use that identity credential API. And my understanding is that most in fact will use it because that gives some operating system support and lets you get those things right into the secure element when supported. I think that's key. So that's the storage story. And that makes it really difficult to clone those, forge them, pull them out. It really takes the user's action to share that data and then the application layer on top to do that. I actually forgot to mention that you can add an additional layer of protection to providing your digital ID to like a police officer or someone else. You can use face ID, pin, passcode, whatever the application that stores that or that's handling that ID is set up. That's something you can't do with a plastic card, right? You can't just say, oh, scan my face before I hand over my plastic card. They can just take the plastic card. There's nothing protecting it. But because this digital ID is stored in software, you can use whatever additional software protections are available in the OS to protect it. So that is a pretty neat benefit that's not available with a plastic ID card. 
And it's actually something I wanted to ask you about next. But uh, before I move on, I wanted to touch upon one more concern that I've heard is the uh, battery issue. So what happens or what might happen if your phone is about to run out of battery or it's already run out of battery? Like what can users do in a pinch? So it's an understandable concern, most definitely. I think for those of us who travel, we now travel with boarding passes from the airlines and it is the same concern. And you see people in airports like, I got to plug in because my flight's in half hour. So yes, it is important for the user to manage their own battery. Well, I think obviously you could carry the physical ID as a backup and should because the ecosystem is building out. And then I know some of the device manufacturers also are looking at ways that you can perhaps keep a little bit of power in reserve that then is used for that secure element storage. I think it's important to maintain the application layer and the consent layer on top of that. So they're looking at how they build out the solutions that might help the concern of the battery. But, you know, we do do this every day in large part. We manage our batteries of our own. And when it's time to pick up the kids from school or it's time, you know, time to get on board a plane and we use it or pay for something and we manage our battery lives. Right. If you are about to run out of battery and, you know, you need to go somewhere, it's not the end of the world. But if you're pulled over by a cop for speeding or something and need to pull out your ID, then it might be much more important to have that ID up and ready whenever they need to ask for it. So yeah, that's why I am interested in seeing how device makers actually address this. And from what I read, there are ways to keep some of these off processor elements alive, even though the OS can't boot up. So like Apple, for example, I think they're their find my iPhone feature. It can enter a special low power mode of the iPhone whenever the device doesn't have enough power to boot up into iOS. That feature can still run and some of the ultra wideband chips, the Bluetooth chips can still be operating at a very low power level. And I know some Android device makers or Google's API, this identity credential API that you brought up before, they built in support for this direct access mode that enables this functionality to where you can bring up an ID even when there's not enough power to boot up Android. But we haven't seen any device makers implement it yet. It requires hardware support. So it is something that's a work in progress and I'm excited to see how that pans out. I can also personally see a feature and where a feature like that is really, really important on a wearable device. That seems like an application where that would be perfectly suited. Agreed. And in fact, the standard in the communications are available from phones or from other wearable devices. I mean, implementing that standard for the communication could be done on a watch or another wearable. So I would anticipate there'll be solutions that come out for that as well. Interesting. I actually hadn't considered wearables, even though I wear one every day. <laughs> so you mentioned a few benefits already of using a digital ID versus a plastic ID. You mentioned earlier that you can restrict what information is given to whoever needs to scan your ID. You can only give them your name and age, for example, instead of showing them the entirety of the card, which includes your address. But you're going to need a lot of convincing to convince people benefits far outweigh the cons and that this is the way forward. So besides the obvious benefit of the fact that this is stored in your smartphone and you carry your smartphone everywhere and it's one less card to carry around, I'd like to know what are the, like a laundry list of benefits that only digital IDs offer over plastic IDs? Like how do digital IDs change the way we register and renew our driver's licenses for the better? Let's start with that. Well, so I think there's several things that are benefits from the consumer point of view. I mean, I think the, the preponderance of these little stick on wallets on the back of phones where people have now probably one card inside there is an indicator, right? Like I'm going to remember my phone and 
therefore I'm going to stick that card on there so that I don't forget it. So that, you know, leave your wallet at home really does feel like the driving factor behind some of the consumer adoption. However, I think there's some other benefits too. So I mean, contactless ID transactions, as we've gone through the last couple of years with the pandemic, contactless payment transactions have increased. People are thinking of that for their own health and safety and contactless ID makes sense to adopt as well. So certainly that's available to people. That is a benefit to them. I think having control over the data that you share, as we you know, mentioned previously, but it is pretty important in that you might have a situation where you're going to enter a bar or nightclub. You don't want that bouncer to have your full information. You really don't want them to see the address where you live. So that control has some, even some safety benefits and it has even somewhere I've, I've checked into hotels and places where they run in the back and photocopy it and leave a pile of photocopied data sitting on a, on a desk at the back of this hotel where, where anyone can walk behind. So I think that control and that ability to limit some of that is important. And having a device that can really securely hold your mobile driver's license is key. I think as well, as we go forward here, the ability to utilize the phone really around the globe. So there are mobile driver's license efforts and initiatives happening in multiple in Australia. There's been in Indonesia, there's talk in Japan, in Europe, there have been proof of concepts. And then of course it's now being discussed in first, you know, the European commission for the e-wallets. So that ability to take that identity document and use it around the world for it to be accepted everywhere will end up to be as this ecosystem builds out, I think will end up to be something that is appealing to consumers as well. I think these systems also kind of bridge the gap between a kind of biometric that likely we've all encountered before, which is facial recognition scanning, usually in the context of, say, like customs clearance or immigration at an airport. Many governments are now using these systems and they are literally collecting sometimes a 3D map of your face. So I think it's to me a little bit, I wouldn't say disingenuous. I understand the concerns people have about giving up their driver's license data, but Every day we give people access to crucial, unique, personally identifiable information about ourselves and our day-to-day -day lives just by stepping outside. And in terms of a driver's license, you know, your example, David, about hotels is a great one. And you could walk into a liquor store, for example, and a person at that store who you've never met, who you have no reason to trust, could ask for your ID and say, hey, I need to scan it with this machine really quickly. You don't know anything about these machines. You just assume this is some kind of automation tool. There are a million ways people can steal your identity, take your personal information, and in a way where you would have no reason to suspect it. I don't think digital IDs are any more prone. If anything, they seem far less prone because we all know that fake driver's licenses are not an epidemic in this country. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think that the concerns about security around digital, while they're valid, in context of how we treat our personal information today right now, I think those concerns are a little less critical. And I don't even have to leave my house to publish my own biometrics because every Facebook post that goes out there, um, you know, with the selfie on it and it is, it is essentially people publishing their biometrics out there. And I think when we realize that and move towards responsible use of these comparisons, it's good, but also add to that the ability to restrict down. If it's just my age and you see that I match my license, if it's just that I'm over 21, that restricts down the data that you share. And I think that can start to improve the situation that we have in general.
So speaking of improving the situation, I wanted to get back to the question that I asked about the way we issue and renew licenses. So I know people, all be, everyone has a story about waiting hours in line at a DMV to renew their license just because of, you know, issues with how long it takes to go through the process and staffing, et cetera. I wanted to ask you, how does that work in a digital ID world? How does a state DMV issue you a license and how do you renew it? How would that work? Okay. So then looking at just the mobile itself. So being able to take an existing physical card essentially, right. And have a secure version that is digitally signed by that issuer and moved onto your device. So that process is one that there'll be multiple options for it. And those options will have to be a certain set of standards. Certainly you could do that in your local DMV office. So you could go there and as part of another license transaction, a renewal with a new photo or, you know, something like that. And you could also get your mobile driver's license right there onto your device. That's one. And I know that there's multiple other different implementations are rolling out. So, you know, what we call selfie registration or selfie biometric check, the kind of thing that you see now when you, you know, rent a scooter on the sidewalk and you are identifying yourself so that they know who you are, who's taking the scooter that you can pay for it. This is becoming much more prevalent. Now doing that to me, identity standards is a challenge. And I think there are solutions out there with that meet those criteria. Those criteria being something like NIST 800-63A, which is sort of identity proofing identity verification standards. So I would anticipate for a consumer to get it, you'd have to be able to show up at an office. You'd be able to go to a website and sign up and do something like you currently do with your renewals and then follow that with perhaps a biometric match, or you could do your own selfie provisioning. We just did um, the Utah pilot. We just did a large registration event over the course of uh, a couple of weekends ago. We had over 500 people that came through to register. So we know like we can meet assurance levels on this. We can meet accuracy levels and without too much user friction. So I would anticipate those are the different ways that you can get it. Now, I think that Doing this and the starting this off initially from the beachhead of, I would like to put my ID on my phone also then has the potential to do other things like renewing it or automating some of the processes that you have that put you at a DMV office right now. And I think as we go through time, we may find that some of those things also migrate in the way that banking has perhaps, right? Where banking operations have migrated over to the phone. I think once we get this started, then those other things can migrate as well. Yeah. One thing I'm particularly, and I'm sure many of our journalist followers are interested in is how would the process of transferring or provisioning your digital ID onto a new phone work? Because those of us in the mobile tech industry get new phones pretty much like every other week. If we had to physically go to a DMV every single time that happened, that would be very annoying. And I know it is possible to securely authenticate yourself to the government. I did so like last week with the IRS. They used a service called ID.me that I had to sit through an interview because my selfie thing didn't work. And sure that works, but I'd prefer to not have to do that every single time I got a new phone. So I, I'm curious, you, you did mention that it's something that will have to be explored and there are ways to get around that. But yeah, I'm hoping there would be a way to offline securely transfer your digital ID from one key store to the key store on another phone, if that's possible. Yes, definitely possible. I mean, certainly being able to log into a web portal and say, okay, I've lost that phone. The tie into the platform support for lost phones and, you know, is, is important as well. So being able to log in and say, yep, that phone, I no longer have that phone. 
whether it's lost or, you know, I just traded it in, right? That's going to be an important step. I think re-registering as well, essentially is sort of re-identifying yourself to your own device, setting up that, downloading the application and running through that selfie registration process certainly will be less painful than having to drop it somewhere to get another one. So I would anticipate those will be the, I mean, that is what we do in the Utah pilot is people are given a, another link where they get a new phone and they can just re-register themselves. That's interesting. I hadn't really considered that. Are there layers there that are just a result of standard regulation around the way driver's licenses are issued, where there has to be a human being involved at some point? So a secondary service like this, like ID me, just has to be part of this. Do you think that's a regulatory issue or is this still another technical hurdle or a just kind of a finding a standard to agree on here? Well, it is both in the current situation in the United States in that I think that the existing standards for identity proofing do need to evolve a little bit. We're sort of, I think, way maybe in the details of this now, but yeah, I think they do have to evolve a little bit in order to allow for high levels of assurance when there's not an in-person transaction. Remember with these, with, with the driver's license and ID cards that we all carry, we already did that in-person event, right? So we showed up, we brought our documentation, we proved our identity sufficiently. That's a challenge that the DMVs have, and they do an amazing job at it when you consider how many people go in day to day with all different kinds of documentations and state of documentation without documentation. So they do a great job with that. That event happened. So I think the, the key thing is to be able to leverage that historical event. I have the record that we have to be able to provision something securely and quickly. There are some standards that still need to develop out for that. There's some on the federal level that I think still need to evolve. There's some from like a global level with the ISO standards, the next versions that would come out that will also include some of that provisioning, measurement of provisioning. Once you've developed or once you've convinced a issuing authority to get on board with the idea of mobile driver's licenses, Next challenge is getting everyone else involved to be on board with the idea. Because as you mentioned in the beginning, with the credit cards, it's not just the uh, users in the OS that needs to be involved. It's also the credit card issuers. It's also the payment handlers. It's also, you know, the actual POS terminals that are taking payments. Like there's so many different layers of things that are involved. And of course, with driver's licenses, 50 states, 50 DMVs, and then every agency and business that uses your ID for identification, liquor stores, TSA companies doing background checks. There's just so many different entities that rely right now on your driver's license or that they use it. So you mentioned one recommendation is like, you know, even if you have access to a mobile driver's license, you still might want to carry that physical license around for at least a few years until it's as ubiquitous. So I wanted to ask you, like, what does ubiquity look like? Like how are standards bodies addressing the issues with the fact that, you know, it's not just the application that needs to be made, but it's an end-to-end solution needs to be developed. And like, what would a federal digital ID framework look like? There's a lot of questions in what you just asked. That, that <laughs> ubiquity, is, ubiquity is one of them because you, it's, it is an option for you to have this on your phone. It's not mandated or required in any way, nor do I expect that it would be ever in the United States. So I think ubiquity is a mixed environment of people who choose to use physical documents and people who choose to use mobile documents. And so I think that that does build out. So you you mentioned essentially the challenge of kickstarting this ecosystem, right? Is that businesses, relying parties that I talk to, they say, "Mm, okay, how many are out there? 
And the number is, well, it's pilot and the, you know, this. And so they're like, I'm going to wait. And then waiting, right. Then you, the consumer is, is left there saying, well, yeah, I really want to get that. I'd love to put it on my phone. Where is it accepted? So you have this little bit of chicken and egg scenario. And the key thing has been to try to identify some of these. And I think you were doing that in your question. Some of these killer use cases, some of these things where it really would save this bank this much amount of money to be able to ensure that they have the KYC that they need and are required by law to have, and they have the checks that they got a digitally signed document with that document number on it. So they, you know, that those use cases can be some of the driving use cases to start as well as visionaries. I mean, I think the visionaries on the business side can also say, you know what, I like to adopt new technology for my customers because that's part of who I am as a company. That's part of the service I provide. And so some of those visionaries stepping forward and saying, using this as an example, even to get publicity for it, of you know, building this out. One of the things that's interesting in this is when you look at the, from the issuer point of view, there isn't a whole lot of reason, business reasons, cost savings reason that an issuer would say, I don't want to do this, but that issuer's signature is critical to making it an official government ID. It has to carry something that says this is official from the jurisdiction in order to satisfy the use cases we're talking about, travel, alcohol, purchase, you know, any legal purchase, identifying yourself for medical care. So that signature is important. And even something simple as saying, I ask my DMV if I'm there, or I send something to, you know, I'd like to see this happen. I think that is giving a demand or expressing a demand that they can respond to, you know, being nicely, of course, about it. I mean, they provide a great civic service to all of us. And, but I do think expressing that demand is important. So it'll be sort of building a piece at a time until this gets rolling, much like it was with payment cards. And I have one question in particular. So right now in the U.S., if you want to travel between states and you want to take a flight, right, you can use your state issued driver's license and no problem. They recognize it no matter which state you got it from, as long as it's from one of the 50 states. So how would that work under a digital ID framework? Say I'm going from Texas to Hawaii and I have a Hawaiian driver's license and I'm in Texas. Would the agent in the Texas airport I'm going from like have to have the Hawaiian verifier app or like could they use the TSA verifier app? Like how would exactly would that work? Well, okay. So, and this is actually in another area where there's a little bit of improvement over the physical cards for those agents. Because right now they get trained in recognizing what uh, the security features are on, and it's not just 50 states because there are territories and there are other, you know, there's government issues, there's military IDs, there's other things that you can travel on that are all part of their ecosystem. So they have to physically know those documents and find the security features on them. Now, what's the advantage in the mobile driver's license or mobile ID space for this. So I mentioned the digital signatures part of this. As the issuer signs that data and then provisions it accurately down to that particular user's mobile device, they are at the same time going to publish a public key, widely publish a public key, so that it's well known. So now from TSA's point of view, you know, I mentioned visionaries, right? TSA, you've seen all the news. So they've been one of the visionaries is, is sort of leading this pathway. They would go and get the public keys from all of the known issuers that they accept, you know, mobile cards from. And like I said, that could be a government employee ID. It could be a military ID. It could be any of the states. It could be Puerto Rico. It could be territories. It could be. So they would get those public keys and they would preload those onto the reader devices that they have. And they have 
you may have seen in some of the news reports, they've even shown some pictures of the reader devices they have. That that loading of that onto the devices means that those public keys being loaded there means that that agent, that TSO does not have to specifically know the security features. The signature is there. It checks the digital signature on it. It says, oh yeah, okay, that's a known good issuer. I know that one. It provides even the chance if something is compromised along the way from one issuer to revoke a certificate, revoke the signatures, re-sign everybody's. And so you, they could pull a public key out of circulation. So I think that removing some of that training can also be of advantage to the TSOs, the people that are checking those IDs. And that's sort of like how that matchup goes is through that distribution of the public keys. Okay. I would be interested in trying this out in the single airport the TSA is trying it out in. I think it's in uh, Phoenix. And I know there are a few other states that are experimenting I with uh, Phoenix. We should have Utah, Salt Lake City Airport as well. Um, Utah, yeah. Short, in the short term. They're another one of those visionaries you mentioned. Utah, they're pretty quick I, to get on board. They have been, actually. They have, really have been. And I think that's, there's quite a few. I think if you look at some, there's some maps, implementation maps of what's happening. So there's several states. Louisiana has something that rolled out and has gotten pretty decent adoption. And they're now transitioning over into a standardized version. You've got several states that have come out with either their own solution. Colorado did something initially that they'll transition to the standard. And you have, yeah, the others that are like visionaries that are, that are trying it now. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, there's on the list of TSA's announced airport locations that they'll roll out as time goes here. Yeah. I'm not calling them visionary sarcastically or anything like that. I just wanted to point out that yes, they are actually one of the states leading the efforts to push digital ID. And, you know, I'm lamenting the fact that my own state, Texas, doesn't have any program of the sort yet. But I wanted to, um, I guess, like clear up the air for any users who are listening who probably aren't following the news because it's something that's actually, I myself find it hard to follow because it's not like a central repository of information containing which state's running which program, which governments has this or like how far along they are. So I wanted to ask you, like, what are some of the more notable MDL trials and their outcomes so far? And when do you think we'll move beyond the trial stage? I do think that what happened at Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix is, is pretty notable and that that is high visibility use case, high security use case when they were all pretty, comf- you know, pretty, uh, with pretty well known, I guess, to all of us. So I do think that that's pretty notable within the state of Utah. We should be going to production, meaning transitioning out of this pilot and trial mode in the next couple of months. I think that's notable. You know, like I said, Louisiana themselves, I, I do point to that one and, and say, cause they are in production. They do have both sides, you know, businesses as well as state agencies and, and state police that accept what they've done. It's localized within Louisiana. And as they move to the ISO standard, then that can then translate to travel in Sky Harbor airport or through Salt Lake city airport. There is a large uptick in the interest post publication of the standard and then in the months following that, as some of these have come out, I do, I think that Apple's push has been great for being able to get some more widespread knowledge out there in the press and say, yep, this is coming. I think that's helped pave the way. And that's going to allow a lot of different solutions to come out and different methods of distribution come out, all really centered around that one standard. And that standard brings the interoperability. You're going to find small production in this year, like that smattering. And then you're going to find there'll be a large uptick, I think during next year, 
when adoption will grow a little bit and then you'll have some of the states there where uh, for funding reasons or other reasons, it's a little slower and they'll take a little bit more time to roll out. So I just have to move to Utah if I want to try a digital driver's license. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> no, you sit here in Texas. I don't think, you know, don't think you'll have to wait. Texas has been well for a long time. I, I'm curious, David, in general, what's been the response to the security story there? Because I think between all of us, we understand this well enough to know that a digital identity certificate is vastly more secure, at least in concept, than a physical card. A physical card is very insecure. So do you see a lot of government agencies and issuers really leaning into that idea that this actually is a more secure and like just a better way to identify people? I think what you're asking about is some of the fraudulent use of fake IDs, essentially, and the reduction of that. I mean, I think if you look at that, that's typically not, it's a problem that the issuers themselves, the DMVs, they care about it. It hasn't been something that's been of like within their sphere of concern, so to speak. However, when you take that over and you move to other state agencies, such as, especially during the past couple of years, during the pandemic, like unemployment benefits, massive hit on what happened there when all of a sudden they had to move from an in-office distribution of benefits to something purely online. So the fraud there, I think, and the reduction of the fraud is one where I think that we're talking about killer use cases, essentially, right? Like that's one where there's a real benefit to being able to move that and reduce fraud. You know, and certainly just being honest about it, right? From the point of view of the businesses that sell alcohol, they care about this reduction, they care about the people, but it, it's also sort of more cursory check that you would do on a fake ID. It's the training required to really discern that fake ID from a real one is so vast. It's difficult for them to put that together. Now, do they care? Yes, they care. They're concerned about it. It's somewhat no, I'm sure everybody knows that there's some level of fraud in that. But I think again, picking those specific key use cases where the reduction of fraud has value, whether it's human value or financial value, I think those are ones that will start to drive this. So I want to follow up on David's question about security with a final question that I want to ask that broadens the horizon beyond mobile driver's licenses and into other forms of digital ID. So on the one side of the spectrum, you have less secure forms of ID, such as student IDs, which aren't as, you know, they're not used for like actual primary identification. Then you have on the other end, you have passports, which I had a wager would be significantly more challenging to implement because of the intergovernmental nature of them. You know, you'd have to exceed, you'd have to make both the travel destination and the, the host country accept that digital passport. So I wanted to ask you, David, what does the future digital passport look like? And what are the challenges that exist? And like, is it something we might see within maybe a decade? Like how far off are we from that? Yeah, no, I, I do think it's something that you'll see within a decade. I think that that would say a decade feels like a very long time for that particular thing to come around. Some of the challenges that so, and also we wouldn't underestimate the international challenges of a driver's license because people do travel in red cars and people do travel and expect to be able to drive where they are. So that reciprocity that exists and has been tagged to the physical licenses was a part of the development of the standards is how do you make sure that people have the rights or privileges that they expect as they travel around the world. And as a society, we travel a lot now. Passport has some additional challenges in that there are already reader devices out there for the electronic passports. So. The concept of keeping that backward compatible is interesting and really a challenge technologically. 
those chips communicate different ways than our mobile phones do. Within the ISO 1813-5 standard, within that working group, once we dropped that backwards compatibility with the chip cards, it was significantly easier to do a good job with the transmission and with the models. So I think that that's one of the challenges that other ISO working group faces. And then of course, you know, when you get to the governments, there's somewhat, there's always got to be some political legislative challenges as well to make things go. So the tech challenges are there as well. Um, however, that said, the 18013.5 standard does permit for multiple document types. You can define a different document type. It's not used at the moment, but it's possible to do that. It is possible to define another document type, like a passport type within the same transmission standard. Again, I think that that's possible, but of course, when you do that, that backwards compatibility is lost between the chip passports that we have. So yeah, I'm really hopeful about other document types. And I mean, I mentioned things like military IDs and so on. Those are ones where there's nothing stopping, even though it's called a mobile driver's license or a mobile ID, there's nothing that's stopping a federal agency from saying, oh, you know what? I'm going to adopt that standard now. I'm going to roll this out. I'm going to do all my military IDs from the Department of Defense and TSA is going to accept them. That's completely possible. So I think we'll see more of these different document types roll out, and then we'll see an evolution of the standard that includes passports. I guess for, you know, just my own personal curiosity, David, are there efficiencies for businesses here that might drive that, I guess, more of political conversation, but what pushes are being made? I know for airlines, for example, I'm sure they could introduce significant efficiency with better identification standards, but they're a really obvious one. And I think we're already seeing evolution there. Are there other areas where there's a really lot, lot of excitement, I guess, around MDL? Yes. I mean, I think that banks are very excited, but also very cautious in their approach to it, understandably. They have that issue that I described with the TSA, TSA agents, right, is training all of your staff to recognize what might look like a fake ID for someone to be opening a bank account. So I think they have that problem. They have the onboarding, they have the remote onboarding problems. There's a lot of banks where you can open an account purely online. I've done somewhere in the end, what I do is take a picture of the license and upload it. And it's painful to do that. So I think there's efficiencies and accuracies that they can see there. Use case by use case, I think there's a different set of efficiencies. If you look at how notaries do their work, a notary will check your ID and they will keep a paper log. Well, if I can keep my, and they're required to keep a paper log of everyone's ID, they check the time of day, like the transaction number of it, so that if there's ever a dispute, it comes back to them. So being able to keep those electronic logs could be a real efficiency gain for notaries. So I think as you go use case by use case, there's going to be a little something that drives their adoption. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And honestly, I think it's something that especially both Michelle and I coming from more of a consumer tech world, we don't think necessarily every day about these big concepts like digital identity, which is something that is going on in the background in a huge way. You know, humans have had to prove who they say they are for thousands of years, and we've had lots of ways of doing that. And this is probably one of the biggest evolutions we're seeing in a long time of that concept, because in all honesty, most of the evolution to date has been from a more difficult to replicate piece of paper to a even more difficult to replicate piece of plastic, essentially. So um, moving to digital gives us unlocks some possibilities, I think, that uh, that weren't there before. I mean, humans are amazing at their ability to detect an individual entity. It's part of like our survival, right? You can glance at somebody and you know who that is and you know they're a different entity than another. And when you take that into the computer world, there's 
nothing in computers that give you that sort of process, you know, parallel processing capability that our brains do and use it. So I think as we go, you know, this mobile driver's license is a step towards initially in-person transactions. I think we could start to make some additional steps towards better identification and verification of identity for online transactions and sort of start to take these challenges on in steps that'll help us to move more of our lives into convenient ways that we want to do them. Okay. Well, I think we've gone through all the questions that we wanted to ask, and I think we've covered pretty much all the high level concepts and things surrounding mobile driver's license. So thank you very much, David, for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I really appreciate the enthusiasm that you have for technology and the ability to sort of dive into these issues. I think it really is great to see the interest start to peak. Well, I really enjoy speaking with experts such as yourself who take the time to actually explain some of this stuff because I'm not at all an expert in cryptography or anything like that. So I'd be lost without the experts actually providing those explanations. And this is the part where I kind of plug Esper and what it is we do. So if you are actually in the business of building hardware that perhaps is involved in the process of identifying people or an attestation kind of identity situation, that's something we can actually help you with. So if you've ever been through global entry at the airport and you've walked up and had your eyeballs or face scanned to get through immigration, you've used what's called a dedicated device. It sits there all day, every day doing one thing, and that is identifying human beings. And those devices have some pretty specific needs in terms of their management, updating the kinds of features you need to be able to control them remotely, because you are moving that 500 pound kiosk across the country to go diagnose it. You're probably sending somebody on an airplane from Virginia or wherever it is um, your agency is based. So if you're dealing with large devices that are difficult to interact with or otherwise get to, and you need to manage them remotely, Esper is the industry's only all-in-one Android-based device management overall platform. We build a distribution based on Android to help run these devices. We can help build an operating system image for you, manage these devices remotely, and then use DevOps principles to update them and continually iterate and improve, fix, and troubleshoot them in the field all remotely. So. If you are in the industry and you're building a device and you're wondering, wow, I'm about to send these things all over the country, how do I actually keep tabs on all of them? Esper is here for you. Head to esper.io to learn more about why the DevOps for dedicated devices era is here. Thanks, David. And for the other David, I wanted to ask you before we close off this show, where can people find you and your company's work? How can they follow what Git Group NA does? So we have a website called mobiledl.us that is sort of the starting point for what we're doing. There's a specific page there as well for Utah residents where they can take a look and get some information about joining into the pilot and where they can use their mobile driver's license. So I'd say that's a great starting point. Certainly Google searching for mobile driver's license or for ISO 18013-5 MDL are great ways to do that. And there's some good articles as well. On the national level, there's mdlconnection.com. I think it is mdl-connection.com that has information about the momentum of the industry in the United States as well. That's through the Secure Technology Alliance. So I encourage you all to get to mobiledl.us and take a look at what we have. Thank you, David and David for joining us on the Android Bytes podcast. So. This podcast is brought to you by Esper, and thank you all for listening to another episode this week. Mm -hmm.